You're watching CNN. I'm Allison Kosick in New York. Let's start with the main news from Ukraine and Russia says nearly a thousand Ukrainian soldiers have surrendered at the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol since Monday. CNN can't confirm the Russian tally. Most of the soldiers appear to have been taken to Russian-controlled territory. A new report from Human Rights Watch details numerous alleged crimes by Russian forces against civilians in the Kiev and Chernyiv regions of northern Ukraine. Among them, 22 apparent summary executions, nine other unlawful killings, six possible enforced disappearances, and seven cases of torture. It's believed the crimes were carried out from late February through March, when Russian troops controlled much of the area. Some Ukrainian civilians interviewed by the group also describe being held in inhumane and degrading conditions with little or no food or water. Meantime, in Kyiv, the first Russian war crimes trial since Moscow's invasion of Ukraine has begun. A 21-year-old Russian soldier is accused of killing a 62-year-old man in Ukraine's Sumy region. That's according to Ukraine's prosecutor general's office. He has pleaded guilty. CNN correspondent Melissa Bell is outside the courthouse in Kyiv, and she joins us live now. Melissa, great to see you. Uh, I understand that court has adjourned early. Uh, Why did that happen, and what happened before the session ended? Well, extraordinary scenes here today at this Kyiv courthouse. It is, of course, as you reminded our viewers, the scene of the first war crimes trial being held in Ukraine since the war began. On trial, 21-year-old Vadim Shishimarin, who's accused of having killed an unarmed civilian on the fourth day of the war uh, after his convoy got hit, he and other Russian soldiers got into a car to try and escape and kill this civilian for fear uh, that he might denounce them to Ukrainian authorities. Now, that is what he's accused of. As you say, the proceedings just adjourned. I don't know if you can see behind me the considerable media presence here, and that is because there were simply too many journalists packed into what is a very small courtroom. So things will pick up again tomorrow. The hearing is postponed to tomorrow. But we did find out one extremely interesting thing in the proceedings that have taken place so far, and that is that we're not only going to be hearing, as we did begin to from Vadim Shishimarin this morning, uh, we're not only going to hear from him, but we're also going to be hearing from another Russian prisoner that is uh, being put given that we're going to be hearing testimony from being called by the prosecution who was traveling in the car with Vadim Shishimarin at the time. So we should learn by tomorrow a lot more about exactly what went on. But we're going to be hearing from not one, but two Russian prisoners of war. And I think that is significant and something that we've only learned this morning. Okay, Melissa Bell, live for us in Kiev. Thanks so much. Finland and Sweden have officially handed in their applications to join the NATO alliance. Their leaders were received by Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg in Brussels earlier today. The decision was spurred by Russia's war on Ukraine, and it marks a major shift for two countries that have remained neutral for decades. Every nation has the right to choose its own path. You have both made your choice of the thorough democratic processes. And I warmly welcome the requests by Finland and Sweden to join NATO. You are our closest partners, and your membership in NATO would increase our shared security. 
The European Commission is proposing to speed up the EU's transition to renewable energy to help end reliance on fossil fuels from Russia. It's planning to invest an extra $220 billion to increase renewable power capacity, saying green energy sources should account for 45 percent of EU output by 2030. Anna Stewart joins us now uh, with more. So what is the EU's plan here to kind of wean off, uh, to wean itself off of Russian energy from, from being so dependent on Russia's oil and gas? Well, this was a really comprehensive package, and that is a big acceleration, that figure for renewable energy by 2030 from what it had before. It comes, as you said, though, with a big price tag, $220 billion. Ultimately, though, it believes this plan would save the bloc longer term, around $100 billion a year, because that's roughly how much it spends on fossil fuels uh, and largely, of course, from Russia. Now, the plan is very comprehensive. Part of this, was, particularly in the short term, will be just replacing some of the natural gas from Russia with liquefied gas from elsewhere. That'll help it reduce its reliance, certainly this year, by two thirds when we're talking about Russia. Longer term, though, it is all about greener energies. And it's got a lot of different plans in this package. For instance, it wants to speed up the process of greenlighting new energy projects, making it easier and quicker. He wants to ensure that any new public building built in the EU uh, has solar roof panels by 2025. Important to note, though, that while this is a really ambitious plan with great ideas on infrastructure to help wean itself off Russian energy, it will require the approval of all 27 member states. And not just the approval, Alison, but also implementation, because it's not just money coming from the EU. This will take uh, action from all member states. And, and some strength, because it's certainly not easy to wean off uh, being so uh, dependent on Russian uh, energy sources. You know, for now, the EU is reliant on Russian gas and it risks mm-hmm. being cut off from that if it doesn't bend to President Putin's demands for payments to be made in rubles. What more are you learning about that? Well, if anything, the situation on that front is getting more confusing. Now, yesterday we had guidance at last from the EU Um, And it seems to contradict, actually, some of the guidance they gave last week. Now, at the heart of this issue is can EU energy suppliers uh, pay for their gas using both a euro account with Gazprom Bank and a euro account? So can they pay in euros to Gazprom Bank, have that money in Russia by a Russian entity converted into rubles and for that to pay for the energy? Would that be a breach of sanctions? At the end of last week, it appeared the EU was leaning towards the idea that it wouldn't be and that just by sending euros to Russia would fulfill the contract, that payment would be done. As of last night, the suggestion is that setting up any kind of ruble account with Gazprom Bank would be a breach of sanctions. This leaves these energy importers in quite a pickle as to what to do now. We believe quite a few of them have set up both euro accounts and ruble accounts with Gazprom Bank at this stage. We know, for instance, any in Italy has done that. They said they did that yesterday as a precautionary measure. Um, but it's coming down to the worst. Some of these can- contracts are due to be paid. Some countries like Finland, their big gas uh, importer there has said they will not play ball with this. They simply refuse to pay in euros and have it converted to rubles. They refuse uh, to bow to President Putin's decree. They expect or warn that they could be cut off from Russian gas this weekend. That has already happened from Poland for Bulgaria. But for a country like Sweden, natural gas accounts for just 6% of their overall energy mix. For other member states, in the EU. So really, we're looking for more guidance, perhaps some compromise and definitely more clarity from the EU on whether uh, these suppliers can pay for their gas using euros that gets converted into rubles. Alison. 
Okay, Anna Stewart, great for all, thanks for all that great reporting. Here in the U.S., business chiefs are increasingly bracing for a recession. A survey by the conference board think tank finds that nearly 70 percent of CEOs expect the Federal Reserve's efforts to tame inflation will eventually trigger a recession. Matt Egan joins us now with the details. Matt, good to see you. So I'm wondering, what did the CEOs detail in this survey? What were they pointing to to say a recession is is definitely coming? Well, Allison, this survey revealed a surprising amount of gloom and doom from the C-suite. Your CEO, CEO confidence is at the lowest level since the start of the pandemic. Sixty uh, percent of CEOs anticipate that economic conditions are going to get worse. That's up from just 23 percent who said that last quarter. And 68 percent expect that the Federal Reserve's war on inflation is going to eventually tip the economy into recession. Now, um, I think two important caveats there. One, just 11% of CEOs expect a so-called hard landing, which would be marked by a deep recession. The rest are actually expecting a mild and short recession, and they're not necessarily anticipating an imminent recession. The survey did not really specify when the downturn would begin, merely describing it as something over the next few years. Uh, Now, this is really all about concerns about the worker shortage, um, rising input costs and and just how high inflation is right now and what the Federal Reserve is going to have to do to get it back under control. You know, it is striking to hear this level of pessimism from business leaders, especially because this economic expansion is barely two years old. And there are a lot of bright spots. I mean, unemployment is at a COVID low uh, headcount. Uh, U.S. payrolls, they're almost back to pre-crisis levels. Retail sales are growing really fast. Uh, but all of that is being overshadowed by high inflation. And, you know, I sort of wonder if this survey raises the specter of a self-fulfilling prophecy where uh, business leaders, they start to hunker down, they spend less because they're worried about inflation and and worried about a recession. And that actually brings about the recession. Uh, I just want to read you a, a key quote from Dana Peterson, the chief economist over at the conference board. And she told me, you can always talk yourself into a recession. If businesses start shedding jobs in anticipation of a recession, that is going to spook consumers and that can get us into a recession. So, Allison, it feels like everyone is very negative right now. Clearly, CEOs are negative. Consumer sentiment is at the lowest level in more than a decade. Investors are negative. Uh, whether or not this is overdone, I don't know. I guess we'll, we'll, we'll find out pretty soon. You know what? I've talked with analysts and I've talked with economists like Mohammed El Arian who think there won't be a recession. So then there is that side of it as well. Matt Egan, thanks so much. Thank you. These are the stories making headlines around the world. Black box data recovered from a China Eastern flight that crashed in March suggests someone in the cockpit cockpit intentionally downed the plane. That's according to a Wall Street Journal report citing a preliminary assessment by U.S. officials. All 132 passengers and crew died after the plane nosedived from 29,000 feet. CNN Beijing bureau chief Stephen Chang has more. Even before the Wall Street Journal story was published, there had been a lot of speculations on Chinese internet about this crash being caused by pilot suicide. Because uh, as many experts have pointed out, a mature aircraft type like the Boeing 737-800 simply doesn't fall out of the sky. 
Now, Chinese officials had previously strongly denied those so-called rumors, but after the journal article was published, we have seen the airline industry regulator here, CAAC, issue a statement to state media basically saying they have reached out to their American counterparts at the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board. And what the Americans have told the Chinese, according to CAAC, was that they have not released information about the investigation to any media outlets. So notice how carefully worded both sides have been. Neither the Americans nor the Chinese have directly denied the crux of the journal report, which was this deadly crash was caused by human inputs from the cockpit. Now, analysts and the uh, observers have also pointed out to some hints and suggestions that the Chinese authorities may be concerned about, if not aware, of the human factors involved in this crash. Because on April 6th, just a few weeks after this crash, the uh, CAAC authorities uh, held a nationwide conference on air safety with the Minister of Civil Aviation actually urging officials across the country to pay particular attention to pilots' state of mind, saying all frontline employees, but especially pilots, need to be physically and mentally fit to fly to ensure the safety of the entire industry. And other observers have also pointed out to the fact that the 737-800 series continues to be operated by Chinese airlines after the crash as another sign that this crash was not caused by mechanical or technical failures. Even China Eastern itself, after suspending commercial services of the aircraft type for a brief period of time, has resumed flying this very popular aircraft across China. Stephen Zhang, CNN. Beijing. U.S. soccer has just reached a landmark agreement. For the first time ever, men and women playing for U.S. national teams will get equal pay and prize money for international matches. The deal comes after years of bitter legal battles and contract disputes. It runs through 2028, covering the next two World Cups, each for men and women, too. Still ahead, a market in meltdown. Investors who say they face ruin will ask if crypto can ever fully recover. And not so free as a bird. With Elon Musk's Twitter deal still on hold, hear what the company's board is now saying. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick. New losses for Bitcoin this morning after a turbulent two weeks for crypto investors. As we have been reporting, the values of Terra and Luna, which were promoted as so-called stable coins, dropped as much as 99 percent in just days. Some investors say it's ruined them financially and even have spoken about suicide. Let's talk with Juthika Chow. She is the head of OTC options trading at the crypto exchange Kraken, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. So, Juthika, it has been a really scary ride for a lot of crypto investors recently. You know, we saw a lot of fear in the crypto markets. I'm curious what you're seeing at Kraken. Are are customers panic selling? Well, I think we definitely saw selling over the last couple of weeks, which is what has contributed to the price action, partly due to the broader market and the growth concerns with the Fed stemming inflation, and then obviously partly due to crypto-specific factors. But I would say among our client base, there's not really panic per se. A lot of customers have been in crypto for a while and have been through multiple cycles, have seen multiple crashes, um, even dating back to just recently in March 2020 and then May 2021. So this isn't the first time we've seen a volatile environment. And I think many of our customers have braced for it and have prepared for it from a risk point of view. 
For Bitcoin, though, you know, volatility, it's expected. But are you sensing that there's anything different about this kind of moment or cycle of volatility? And what do you see in the short term for bit for Bitcoin? Is there any recovery for it? I mean, gone are the days, it seems, of one hundred thousand dollar Bitcoin by the end of the year. Well, I think what's different this time around is how much it's tied to the broader market. So I've been in Bitcoin for a while. And if I look at prior cycles, the volatility was usually specific to Bitcoin factors. For example, China banning Bitcoin or when we had the Mt. Gox hack in 2014. But this is the first time that a lot of the volatility is actually driven by what's happening in the broader market with the NASDAQ, with tech stocks. And I think part of that is due to the institutionalization of Bitcoin, where you have more funds and institutions that are investing both in traditional assets as well as Bitcoin. And so I think it goes both ways in terms of that's obviously very good for Bitcoin and adoption, but it does contribute when you get broader market volatility that contributes to Bitcoin volatility. Um, I think as we move from being more risk off right now, which is the current nature of the environment to being more risk on, we will see investors disproportionately invest back into Bitcoin, particularly as they start thinking about what assets to own as an inflation hedge. One of your competitors, Coinbase, recently said if it went Uh, if it went bankrupt, its users could lose all the crypto in their accounts. What do you make of that? And can the same thing uh, happen at at Kraken? Well, I can't really speak to Coinbase's comments. um, And I think a lot of times there are just uh, legal restrictions that you have to put uh, and disclaimers that you have to put. But ultimately, um, they're just questions around custody and holding crypto um, and, and custody at, as an exchange. Um, and a lot of the fiduciary obligations that we have as custodians, we obviously take those very seriously. And I'm sure Coinbase does, too. I think folks within the space, there wasn't really much surprising. It was just um, kind of nitpicking some legal language out of the 10K or 10Q. Maybe it wasn't so surprising to you. you. You live and breathe this stuff. But oftentimes, a lot of these investors who get into crypto, they don't read the finer points. So does that what's your suggestion then for people who, let's say, uh, have crypto, you know, uh, let's say they're invested with you. Can, is, is it better to put it in a wallet? Is it safer there? And is it tradable as well? So I think there are trade-offs when it comes to custody. And so the two main questions are, do you want to hold your own private keys, your own passwords, or do you want to entrust a third-party custodian with it? And I think both answers are equally valid, depending on people's risk appetites and their um, the where they kind of fall in the spectrum. So a lot of times, a custodian uh, might be more uh, safe and more efficient for you to manage. You don't have to worry about the headaches. But obviously, you are entrusting a third party with custody risk. Some folks prefer to have the control of having their own private keys, but ultimately then the responsibility lies with them. And if they forget their passwords or their their seeds or if they lose it, then there's really no help coming um, and and they would have lost their Bitcoin. And so it really varies depending on individual appetite. But I think both are equally valid approaches for individuals. Well, Juthika, thank you so much for all that great information. I'm sure those who are playing with Bitcoin these days will appreciate that. Juthika Chow, thanks so much for your time. El Salvador is facing tens of millions of dollars in losses on crypto. Last year, it became the first country in the world to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. But the president also invested $100 million in Bitcoin before the price plunged. Rafael Romo has more on that and the wider economic concerns. Rafael, what are you seeing? 
Hi, Allison. Well, since early November, when Bitcoin was at its peak, the cryptocurrency has gone down by a whopping 56%. This morning, it's worth less than $30,000 when it reached nearly $68,000 back then. For El Salvador, the problem is not only the purported loss of tens of millions of dollars, but also the fact that credit rating agencies have downgraded the country, which will make it difficult to get any loans for government projects. It was flashy, loud and colorful. The special effects rivaled those of a rock concert. That's how El Presidente made his grand entrance, greeting everybody in English. No old-fashioned suit or tie needed. We demonstrated that Bitcoin could do a lot of good things. Nayib Bukele, the 40-year-old millennial president of El Salvador, told the crowd he's making his Central American nation of 6.5 million a Bitcoin nation. That was back in November, when the market cap for cryptocurrency hit $3 trillion. Bukele started promoting Bitcoin during the summer. This will generate jobs and help provide financial inclusion to thousands outside the formal economy. And in September, El Salvador became the first country to make Bitcoin legal tender alongside the U.S. dollar. Two months later, the president announced plans to build a city where Bitcoin would reign supreme. But not everyone has jumped on the Bitcoin bandwagon. It's supposed to be the currency right now, Bitcoin, but people are not using it. It's mostly, uh, you know, uh, businesses, international businesses like Starbucks, like McDonald's that are accepting Bitcoin because, you know, they don't want to be at the fault with the policies of the government. And the government has gone all in, buying up more than 2,300 Bitcoins since September to the tune of more than $103 million. The problem is that in the same period, the cryptocurrency has lost more than 35% of its value, meaning the Salvadoran taxpayers are tens of millions of dollars in the red thanks to their president's investment strategy. The president's answer, buy the dip, words he has posted multiple times on Twitter. For an investor, for an individual investor, it may make sense, right, to say buy the dip, but the problem for a country, the risk is way bigger, and we don't know if this is the dip. Georgia University business professor Julio Sevilla says the risk goes beyond losing money. Their own bond market has also uh, suffered a lot, you know. It's up there with Ukraine on the riskier bonds perceived as countries, and Ukraine, uh, you know, it's in a war that they didn't induce. El Salvador is getting into this risk voluntarily. On the one hand, El Salvador is making a risky investment. On the other, the small Central American country is counting on help from the International Monetary Fund to repay government bonds worth $800 million. The bonds are due in January, and this burden is in addition to other financial obligations. How big is the risk of default? If the president keeps on buying as Bitcoin goes down, I think the risk uh, of default may be larger because at some point the IMF is going to say, no, we're, we cannot loan you money. You're not doing things uh, the right way. Sevilla says he still expects El Salvador to get financing. But if its president continues to double down on risky investments, he says default is a very real possibility. And Bukele's dream of making his country a Bitcoin nation could become a mirage. And two credit rating agencies, Fitch and Moody's, have downgraded El Salvador so far this year in part because of the risk associated with Bitcoin purchases. And according to an analysis by Bloomberg, El Salvador's Bitcoin losses are roughly equal to its next bond payment of $38 million due in mid-June. Allison, back to you.
All right, Rafael Romo, thanks so much. Still to come, Ukraine's only National Postal Service is still making deliveries amid the war. I'll be talking with the service's director about its new stamp and how their work has changed during the war. That's after the break. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick. Uh, that was the opening bell, and U.S. markets are up and running. And it looks like stocks are lower to start the day, a day after we saw some strong gains in the market. In an interview yesterday, Fed Chair Jay Powell said the central bank will not hesitate to raise interest rates to tame inflation. This as rising costs are weighing on some company earnings. Shares of Target are falling sharply after its first quarter profit missed expectations. The company blames high costs and supply chain problems. Meantime, shares of Lowe's are also down after its sales missed its estimates. The company says cooler spring weather hurt demand for seasonal goods. A failed river crossing turned into a graveyard of Russian tanks. CNN's Sam Kiley reports from the scene of one of Russia's worst defeats in Ukraine. The first signs of a Russian disaster, a Z-marked Russian tank being salvaged by Ukrainian troops. A few days ago, this was the scene on the edge of these woods, Russian pontoon bridges under ferocious Ukrainian artillery attack. The Ukrainian commander with us casts an eye to the sky looking for Russian drones. This is no place for complacency. Ukraine and NATO have claimed that Russia suffered badly here. They estimate 70 to 80 vehicles destroyed and a whole Russian battle group of a thousand men mauled. So we're at the edge now of the area where the Russian armour was caught after it had crossed the pontoon river. You can see down here there's a destroyed tank next to it, an armoured personnel carrier. And if we look down the road here, we've got another armoured personnel carrier and another and another. The Ukrainians were able, they say, due to their superior reconnaissance and intelligence to work out where the Russians were going to cross and then bring in devastating levels of artillery. And this is the result. This is only the edge of it. Russia has now shifted its attacks elsewhere, at least for now. When you see this, how do you feel? Super. Great. I understand that our artillery is working, and our troops are working too, because there was both artillery and ground fighting. The units, in cooperation with other troops, were pushing the enemy across the river on foot. Shattered Russian armor is scattered along this path through the woodland. On the ground, we can't move forward. The track is mined. A real disaster for the Russians, but something that the Ukrainians now are saying here that means that the pressure is off this particular front for now and that they believe that the Russians are focusing more of their efforts elsewhere. Ukrainian soldiers pick over the debris of this victory, but the chilling truth is that many of their comrades have ended up like this. And while this is a success in the grinding war for Ukraine, Russia remains an immediate threat. And they've asked us to get out of here with their military commander because the, uh, they're worried that our cars are going to attract attention and therefore attract incoming. This is still clearly an extremely active area. And one, as it was for the Russians, that's a considerable relief to leave. Sam Kiley, CNN, Bilohorivka. 
Ukrposhta is Ukraine's national postal service, and it has been operating throughout the war. Despite the dangers of working in a war zone and massive damage to roads and rail tracks, it is still delivering pensions, parcels, mail, and aid supplies. Last month, it issued a stamp celebrating Ukraine's strong resistance. It pictured one of the defenders of Snake Island shouting defiance at a Russian warship. Igor Smolensky is the director of gen, is the director general of Ukraine's National Logistic and Postal Service, and he joins us live now. So great to have you on the show today. Thank you, Alison. Hi. You know, it's remarkable how Ukraine has been able to keep many of its central functions running throughout the war, and this includes your service, which is vital. I'm curious to hear how you and your employees continue making deliveries and stay safe. You know, I would imagine there are, are so many obstacles to overcome every day just so you can get those uh, deliveries done. Sure. I mean, I think safety is a relative term right now, but uh, obviously we're trying our best to be safe. We start every day at 5 at 6 a.m., uh, reassessing the military situation, uh, assessing which roads we can or cannot take, uh, where we can or cannot go. Um, and uh, we plan our routes, and that's how we keep our employees and the clients safe. We work with military to demine, uh, to demine the places, to demine our branches, which have been occupied sometimes by Russian forces. Uh, so it's uh, now become part of the daily work. Is it true that you are on Vladimir Putin's kill and capture list of key Ukrainian leaders? If so, do you know why? Um, you know, you never know for sure what's in his head, but uh, I think uh, every uh, chairman or every um, executive of the top companies, the strategic company on his list, um, railways, posts, uh, ports, etc. But uh, I don't think we should take it in our head. Uh, we just have to keep operating and uh, uh, do the job that we do and hopefully we'll win and uh, he no longer matters in the world politics. You know, millions of people have fled Ukraine. H- how hard is it to keep employees at this point? Are, are you finding that as well, that you're knocking on doors to make deliveries and no one answers or worse, you get to their homes and they're destroyed? Uh, we have both. Um, obviously, we have local employees that know exactly what's happening. Uh, by the way, we are helping our um, citizens that left. Uh, we established a new service called the Suitcase from Home. So all the refugees that left Ukraine, their relatives can send their stuff to them wherever they are, Italy, Poland, U.S. And uh, just last month, uh, I think we tripled our volumes. Uh, so they can have something from home, uh, clothing, toys, everything. And um, in the places which have been destroyed, we are finding people. We are finding them in bomb shelters. Sometimes they live in bomb shelters. Uh, we are finding them in their new places. Or if they, let's say if they change the place where they live, they can uh, obtain their pensions in their new location. So we are adapting to the situation on a daily basis and trying to make sure that people are receiving what they are receiving. I personally went to Donetsk and Lugansk region uh, last week. And we delivered over 70 pensions to Severodonetsk, a city which has been without mobile connection or even without electricity, but we still delivered. I understand your company issued a stamp. Tell us about it. How did you come up with it? And uh, what's been the response to it? Um, I think the response has been great. It's now the symbol of our fight. Uh, on the stamp, yes, as you correctly described, uh, there is a soldier that uh, sends the Russian ship uh, to go where it needs to go. And so we issued the stamp on April 12th and April 14th, the ship was sank. 
So uh, I think we got the message, you know, what's important during the post service that once you send the message or send the letter, it's been received and delivered. So I think this time it's been delivered. And the reason this stamp is so popular because it sends the sentiment that I think all the people in the world feel toward Russian forces. They need to go where they need to go. And by the way, on Monday, we will issue the new stamp called Russian Warship Done, just to celebrate the fact that uh, uh, it's now in the status of the submarine. And hopefully that's where the Russian military will be. What's the biggest challenge that you face in your business? I think it's containing emotions and making your decisions with the cold head. Uh, you see millions of people in this place. You see your employees killed. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, I think every day we need to assess the situation and focus on the goal, on making sure that we deliver food, uh, we deliver parcels, we deliver pensions uh, to millions and millions of people. I think that's been the hardest part uh, that I learned uh, how to do and hopefully uh, we will have to keep doing it not for a long time. Well, you are certainly uh, an example of a business that is literally just moving forward uh, right in the middle of a war. Igor Smolensky, Director General of the Postal Service of Ukraine, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. The UK is introducing new legislation that could break the rules of its deal with the EU. Some say it also threatens to put peace at risk on the island of Ireland. We'll explain after this. Tensions are rising over Brexit again. EU officials are bristling after Britain said it would propose new legislation to let it ignore some of the terms of its Brexit agreement. The law would mean the government could set aside parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol, a crucial part of the 2019 Brexit Accord. The EU says that would be unacceptable and would trigger retaliation. British officials insist they do want to reach a solution by talking. Ireland's leader tells a different story, though, claiming the U.K. is not sincerely engaging in talks with the European Union. He voiced his concern to CNN's Richard Quest. It's time you started negotiating seriously and in a substantial way with the European Union. I mean, this is the treaty that you signed up to, the British government signed up to this, ratified it in Parliament, um, and now have misgivings in terms of the potential operation of this protocol, because let's not forget some aspects of this haven't been implemented yet. Uh, grace periods, exemptions and so forth. Uh, but nothing can replace uh, substantive professional negotiations between the European Union and the United Kingdom to deal with issues that have legitimately arisen in respect of the operation um, of the protocol, particularly raised by unionists within Northern Ireland, which we believe can be resolved through sentiment negotiation. Right, but they would say that there has been negotiation for the last six months to a year. There has been negotiation. The EU proposals are not acceptable to the British and vice versa. And therefore, this is the way forward. They're not, of course, at the moment, uh, activating Article 16. There hasn't been negotiation for the last six months. They said there has um, been. But they know there hasn't. There hasn't, de facto, because there was elections happening in Northern Ireland. Now, there were uh, engagement prior to Christmas and to be fair to Maris Sefcovic, the Vice President of the European Commission, he brought forward very significant advances. Um, and he listened and he met unionist politicians and also industry and business in Northern Ireland. By the way, the protocol is advantageous now. It's working in favour of industry, business, jobs, agriculture in Northern Ireland. And most people in Northern Ireland want to retain access to the European single market. Would you support a change in the protocol? 
No, we, 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 we're prepared as members of the European Union through negotiations between the European Union, the Commission, Vice President and his team, and the UK government to minimise the impact in terms of checks and so on of the operation of the protocol, which can be done with sensible engagement, it can be done. But this kind of on-off start, you know, the British government can't just keep talking to itself about this. It needs really to get into proper negotiations with the European Union. The Northern Ireland Protocol was an attempt to uphold a delicate power balance. It ensures borders remain open between Northern Ire the Northern Ireland uh, and the Republic of Ireland, key to maintaining peace in the region. Aside from risking a trade war, some warn scrapping the protocol could lead to rising tension on the ground. Bianca Nobolo explains why. All of the disruption of Brexit, arguably the thorniest challenge and least debated beforehand, was its effect on the island of Ireland. The Northern Ireland Protocol came into effect in 2020 to try and address some of these difficulties. It had two key objectives. Number one, protecting the EU's single market, which allows the free movement of people, goods, services and capital. Because Northern Ireland is part of the UK, separated by the Irish Sea, and Republic of Ireland is part of the EU. So this is now the only land border between the UK and the EU. The second thing was avoiding a hard border on the island of Ireland. The removal of border checks was an important part of the peace process in recent decades. And there are fears that the restoration of a hard border here would have an incendiary effect on tensions between the unionists, who want Northern Ireland to remain part of the UK, and the Republicans, who want unity with the Republic of Ireland. Plus, they had to find a way to mitigate the economic and social impact on people and businesses which move across this border frequently. So the way to square this circle ended up being customs and regulatory checks on the movement of goods between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, effectively creating a border in the Irish Sea, which has infuriated unionists. So why does this matter? The Northern Ireland executive is in deadlock because of it. Unionist parties are refusing to re-enter government until major changes are made to this protocol. Because this assembly is based on power sharing, there must be both a nationalist representative and a unionist, and one cannot be in power without the other. So, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, there he is, says that he wants to get the government there back up and running. He's also arguing that the circumstances have changed dramatically since the protocol was agreed, namely the pandemic and a European war worsening a cost of living crisis. So he's threatening to override the protocol to make changes that are palatable to his government and unionist parties in Northern Ireland. And he says he'll do that unilaterally, saying that the UK would have a necessity to act if a compromise can't be found with the EU. But the EU has made it clear that unilateral action would be a breach of international law, which is generally not a good look for a head of state. And the EU has warned that taking that step could spell a trade war and or legal challenges. And Sinn Féin, now the largest party in the Northern Ireland Assembly, has warned that the Prime Minister tearing up the protocol will destabilise Ireland. Coming up after the break, the Twitter board is on Elon Musk's back saying it'll hold him to his $44 billion deal. That's next.
Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick. Africa is making strides toward a more inclusive financial future from fintech to free trade. The continent is seeing transformation with the unbanked getting accounts and trade barriers falling. Maktar Diop the, of the International Finance Corporation sits down with our Connecting Africa host, Eleni Giokos. The pandemic has seen an incredible acceleration in the fintech space. And I guess when you look at the African example, you know, in many ways, so many African economies have been at the forefront of pioneering solutions to bank the unbanked through fintech. Give me a sense of where we are right now. This is just fantastic what's happening in Africa. A, few, a decade ago, when we were talking about fintech, about MPESA, the IFC invested in Safaricom, and people were saying, what are you doing? What that is was a thing? good call, yeah? That was a good call, huh? <laughs> and people were saying, what is this thing called uh, a fintech? Uh, fast forward today, we have, uh, of the nine unicorns we have in Africa, six of them are uh, coming from fintech. So fintech is, is doing great. In Nigeria, we have now three big unicorns in fintech. So the business is moving well. But most importantly, it has an impact on people's life and people's development. We have, uh, as you know, financial inclusion, which is very low in Africa. Only 58% of people have uh, accounts. And now with uh, fintech, you have now people who can do transaction, buy. You had foresight when it came to M-Pesa. And in fact, there's been something that's been said that we haven't really seen anything riveting in terms of true disruptive technology since M-Pesa. Yeah. So what's the next M-Pesa? Interesting things. The number of women in startups are, uh, is much larger than people would have expected. And you see great ideas of young entrepreneurs. And it's interesting, you see a mix. People who are in Europe or in the US coming back, back home and developing their business. People who never left, left Africa were developing their, their, their business. And uh, we are pairing also with MIT Lab and we're trying to do some innovation for development and try to see some of these uh, innovation moving forward. So I think that it will help uh, developing uh, inter-Africa trade. But we need to make sure that everything which has been signed and said in the Africa Free Trade Agreement becomes a reality. It's the financing institutions and it's the businesses that are going to ensure that the continental free trade area is actually, you know, becomes reality. Are you, are you excited about what you're seeing right now since it went live? I see a lot of, 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 of uh, political will to do that. But I think it would be the next step is to make sure that the private sector and businessmen are the center of the Africa Free Trade Agreement. Encouraging to have at the continent-wide a dialogue between the private sector and the public sector so they can really exchange ideas on what is, are the challenges they're facing. The Twitter board is pushing Elon Musk to complete his $44 billion deal for Twitter. As we've mentioned, the billionaire says it's on hold pending his concerns about spam bots. In a statement, the Twitter board said this, We believe this agreement is in the best interest of all shareholders. We intend to close the transaction and enforce the merger agreement. Notice the word enforce there. Could legal action be on the way? Paula Monica has the latest now on this Twitter twist. So what do you think? Could legal action be on the way here? I mean, it's possible, but obviously, Allison, it really all depends on what Elon Musk decides to do. There is that binding agreement to buy Twitter at $54.20 a share. Look at Twitter's stock price, and it's clear that Wall Street does not expect the deal to go through at that price. At last check, Twitter shares were trading below $38 a share. So I think Musk 
either is looking for a way out because of these concerns that should have come up if he had done real due diligence instead of impulsively trying to buy Twitter. Uh, but I think that there's also the distinct possibility that Twitter recognizes that Musk may be their only hope, if you will, and they might need to do a deal at a lower price. So instead of litigation, maybe Musk and the Twitter board go back to the negotiating table, realize that a lot of things have changed in just the past month, and maybe the takeover price is something below 54.20, but hopefully above 38. You know, it seems as if the board is trying to get a hold of this runaway train, a.k.a., you know, this possible takeover of Twitter. Is there even a certain date in the SEC filing about uh, Elon Musk's interest in the, in the company to buy it? Is there a date that this, he either needs to, to buy it or, 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 or get out of it? Yeah, I mean, he has a binding deal. So if uh, he does not want to go through with this offer at the current price and decides to walk away entirely, there is a $1 billion breakup fee, which is admittedly couch change, uh, couch cushion change for for Elon Musk. So uh, not something that he probably would be too concerned about. I think the bigger question, though, Allison, remains, will Musk really want to buy Twitter, but just at a lower price? Or could he possibly look to start his own social media network if he is so inclined? He's got the cash to do it if he wants to start yet another company to go along with Tesla, SpaceX, Boring Company, and everything else that he runs. Mm -hmm. Well, Paul, we'll have to watch uh, Twitter to find out, right? (laughs) And Paula Monica, thanks so much. And that's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World with Eleni Giocos is next. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.